Thank you for joining us today for hopefully the first of many podcasts um, and today we're going to be discussing some aspects around direct oral anticoagulants known as DOACs. I'm Chris Day, ICU consultant and medical lead for MMPS and I'll be seeking expert advice from Catherine Sterling, consultant pharmacist in thrombosis and anticoagulation. Catherine, welcome. Can I start by asking about DOACs in that for someone of my age these are relatively new developments and treatment options for anticoagulation. Can you enlighten me how they work? As you say they are relatively new but obviously that's compared to warfarin which has been around for 60 years or so. We've been using the new agents in Leeds for nearly 10 years now. There are four drugs, apixaban, adoxaban and rivaroxaban, a direct factor 10a inhibitors, note the XA in their names to give you a clue and dibigotran is a direct thrombin inhibitor. Thinking of warfarin, which is a vitamin K antagonist, that affects four coagulation factors, two, seven, nine, and 10, whereas these drugs act at just one point on the coagulation cascade. Okay, thank you very much. Um, what conditions can be treated with them? Uh, this, um, all four are licensed in adults for the treatment of VTE and prevention of recurrent VTE, and also for the prevention of stroke in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. We use Rivaroxaban here in Leeds for the prevention of VTE, post-hip and knee um, replacement. Apixaban and Dibigatran could also be used for that. Rivaroxaban was also licensed for the prevention of adverse outcomes after acute coronary syndrome, prevention of atherosclerotic events in patients with coronary and peripheral artery disease alongside aspirin. It's also licensed for the treatment of VTE in children. And we do use DOACs as an unlicensed indication in the trust for the treatment of left ventricular thrombus in cardiology. Okay. When I was in training, oral anticoagulation principally meant warfarin. Does it still have a role to play? Are there any patients that should not receive a DOAC? Warfarin definitely still has a role to play. I think when DOACs first came out, everyone thought that was the end of warfarin, um, but it, has, uh, st- it is still needed. There are certain patients who do require warfarin as their oral anticoagulant of choice, such as those with mechanical heart valves, where warfarin has been shown to be superior to DOACs in terms of both reduction in thrombosis and stroke and reduction in bleeding. Another condition is antiphospholipid syndrome, um, which is an acquired thrombophilia, where warfarin is recommended, um, as some studies have suggested, it's more effective than DOACs, especially for patients with arterial thromboses. In other areas, there's little data on DOACs yet because their patient numbers tend to be smaller and they've not been tested. So those with thrombosis at unusual sites, such as renal or cerebral vein. So warfarin is currently the preferred option there. Some people do go on to have thrombosis while on DOACs, so warfarin again may be a more suitable option. Some patients don't tolerate DOACs due to side effects, uh, such as GI issues. Um, and some patients with poor renal function with a creatinine clearance of less than 15 mils a minute are not suitable for DOACs due to their licensing. So again, warfarin um, is the drug of choice there. There are certain drugs interactions that preclude the use of DOACs. Um, such as high-dose carbamazepine, certain HIV drugs such as the protease inhibitors, um, where warfarin is preferred. Um, and of course, patient preference. Some people still like the, um, the testing, the warfarin, the INR number. And previously, I mentioned non-valvular atrial fibrillation as being a reason to use a DOAC. Um, but people with valvular atrial fibrillation, so moderate and severe mitral stenosis, uh, DOACs are not recommended and warfarin is still the drug of choice. Okay. What about heparin? So we use a lot less unfractionated heparin than we used to, but that's mainly due to the ease of uh, low molecular weight heparin rather than DOACs. 
So low molecular weight heparin um, is still a, a really important option for patients who can't have an oral anticoagulant, such as those um, who've got uh, severe liver or renal impairments, uh, post-surgery, um, or they're having interacting medications such as chemotherapy um, or other interacting drugs. So if we come across a patient on a DOAC, what general points should we consider? Oh, good question. Um, so there's been a lot of um, talk recently about the numbers of patients who are on the incorrect doses of DOAX, and that can be up to 25% in some studies. Doses of DOAX are calculated on indication, age, weight and renal function using creatinine clearance, not EGFR. Um, there's a good guideline on the anticoagulant guideline pages, uh, on the clinical guidelines on loose health pathways, uh, on the use of DOAX with all the different dosing options available in that. Again, another obvious point would be to check the patient's bleeding, and these are anticoagulants after all. Ensuring that the patient isn't on VTE prevention if they are taking their anticoagulant, obviously we do prescribe that for a lot of patients in hospital. They're already on a DOAC um, and they're taking the DOAC, then they don't need VTE prophylaxis as well. Obviously, if they're not taking the DOAC for some reason, uh, because they're nil by mouth, then it is important to consider VTE prophylaxis in, in those patients. Thanks very much. How are DOACs monitored? Uh, yes, yeah, so another, another good question. Um, unlike warfarin with its specific test of uh, INR, um, there's no requirement for INR monitoring uh, for DOACs. Um, often the, the uh, coagulation screen, um, uh, including the INR, are not affected by the DOAC. Uh, in the majority of patients as well, there's no need to monitor specific drug anti-10A levels or dobigatran levels. Um, unless there are absorption concerns or, or bleeding concerns, and that's usually guided by uh, the haematology department if those are required. important thing is about checking renal function uh, and checking the patient's weight uh, to ensure they're on the uh, correct dose. So a lot of the general monitoring for those drugs is carried out in primary care, where they'll monitor renal function at least every um, 12 months, sometimes every six months or more frequently if they've got rapidly changing function uh, with full blood count and LFTs every year. And so if a patient as an inpatient has been started on a DOAC during the hospital stay, what key information should we tell the patient? Oh yeah, thank you for asking this. It's really important that we uh, talk to our patients about the reasons for anticoagulation and that the information is clearly communicated. Obviously, they're involving the patient um, in the discussions around anticoagulation, explaining why they need it. Um, and if there are choices of the drugs available, um, explaining the, the choices to them. On PPM Plus, there's a DOAC checklist, which at the moment is primarily for, aimed more at VTE treatment, um, but can be used for people starting a DOAC for AF as well. Um, and that can give the prescriber um, guidance on important uh, renal function and dosing considerations, but also things to ensure that you've spoken to the patient about, such as how to take it, what to do if heavy bleeding occurs, or there's a head injury, um, or um, a thunderclap headache, ensuring you know, that patients uh, promptly attend A&E if, if there are some concerns around serious bleeding. Um, also ensuring the patient knows how to take the medication, they understand where their next supplies will come from if they need more treatment, um, and when they might get a review as well. Some other drugs um, are twice daily, such as apixaban and dabigatran. Um, rivaroxaban needs taken with food, so ensuring that the patient can manage that as part of their regular medication um, is really important. Um, it might mean that we need to use a different drug if that's going to be difficult for them, so ensuring that we're discussing it with them. There are leaflets available on the formulary um, for all of these drugs for both atrial fibrillation and for VTE. 
Um, and we have recently had some occasions where patients haven't continued their DOAC for an acute VTE, so ensuring they understand they need to continue it and where to get supplies from and when they will be followed up is really important. And following on key information, what should the EDAM contain for the GP? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The EDAM needs to be really clear, ensuring the indication for the DOAC is on there so that the, the team at the surgery know, know what the patient's been started on and why. Um, documentation of whether the GP needs to continue the supply or any monitoring they need to do and what follow-up the patient will receive so they, they can um, understand what, what the likely pathway is for that patient and help them if, if it uh, doesn't quite as occur to plan. So communicating that is really important um, and just help our primary care colleagues to ensure safe and effective use of the anticoagulant. Catherine, many thanks for your expert advice. I know I've learnt a lot. I hope people listening have also found it useful. So until next time, thank you. Thank you.